think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 122 of the Boys in Short Pants. I'm Laurent Carboneau. I am Aitzen Rainville. The 123rd episode. You thought you, thought you got away, but never. We're, we're keeping <laughs> it going, folks. you thought you were out. We pulled you back in. Uh, yeah, hello, everyone. It's been a little bit since we last recorded. It's just kind of a... Kind of a busy winter for both of us, so just uh, kind of fell by the wayside, and for which apologies. And also, I don't know if you heard, but Ottawa was a little, uh, a little fraught there for a couple of weeks in February. So you'd think kind of that a... that would have led to us podcasting more, but we are in fact so countercultural that uh, we decided not to podcast while the major national events were happening. Also, frankly, much of it would have been uh, unpublishable. Uh, so uh, you know, <laughs> such is life. And here we are on the the other side of it, and uh, I guess global events have superseded the interest in um, Ottawa's uh, plight. Um, and you know, Parliament's back. The budget's about to uh, to land. I think everyone's expecting early uh, April at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's definitely things on the go. Although I think it's safe to say that this has not been a a legislation-heavy return to Parliament. No! Uh, um, it, I would go so far as to say that the legislative side of things has been completely an afterthought for most people. Um, I guess there's ongoing stuff about the um, online harms bill that's uh, that's going through, or at least at a consultation stage. There's the sort of revamped C-10, which is now C-11, the heritage bill. Uh, but honestly, I can't really think of what else in terms of substantive legislation is moving right now. So it uh, has been pretty quiet on that front. Which, I, I mean, I think is fine. Uh, I mean, fine for who, I guess, is uh, subjective. But if you're, if you're a stakeholder looking for, you know, urgent legislation, um, that's one thing. But in, in the absence of that, uh, I think the government's, you know, focusing more in terms of using its executive power and, and leaving the House of Commons side as an afterthought, as it often has over the past uh, past several years. Um, so, yeah, to, to be clear, not, I don't I don't mean that it's been quiet legislatively as, as necessarily a criticism. I was just remarking that it is, in fact, pretty quiet. Yeah, I, I, think, that's, yeah. I think that is fair. Um I haven't been rushing to read any of the bills that have been uh, tabled as of late. A lot of them have been reheated versions of uh, yeah. uh, stuff from the last session of Parliament. So no worries there at all. Um, but I, I guess what's what's the agenda laid out for us? What are the uh, the first items on the docket? Well, did we want to chat a little bit about the, uh, the use of the Emergencies Act? Was that uh, of interest? Sure. I think... Uh, I think we have a a reasonably similar view on the use of this legislation. And I think now, especially in the context of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the use of emergency powers by a government is really put into context. Um, I think it's hard to look at what happened in Ottawa and what happens you know internationally in terms of the the crises that governments face and really stand by the fact that this was kind of a once in a lifetime emergency that required the invocation of the emergencies act i think the the chat and you know beyond that we haven't seen thorough analysis of how useful the emergencies act was 
you know, some folks will point to the financial powers in particular as kind of the, the harshest of the powers that were introduced. Some will talk about um, that it had some sort of intangible effect in terms of coordinating uh, the police and getting them to be serious about it. But I think where we both land ultimately is that the use of the Emergencies Act, um, you know, happened only because of the absence of leadership at uh, municipal and provincial levels, but that in and of itself, you know, one should not be happening and two, in the event that that does happen, um, is using once in a lifetime emergency powers necessarily the right course of action. Yeah, it's a little bit of the, the cannonball to kill a, a fly. Thing. And, and before I, I, yeah, before people get mad at me for using that metaphor, like, I, I don't want to minimize what happened here. Like, it was extremely, like, I live very close to downtown. It was extremely unpleasant. And I imagine for people who were getting the around the clock honking that it was intolerable. And I really think it was, you know, a really awful thing that caused a lot of suffering. And the, the folks who were here were really, really, really nasty people for a lot of them. Uh, and if they weren't nasty people themselves, they were very keen to be associated with very, 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 very nasty people. Uh, and I don't really care what goes on between their ears in terms of what they believe or don't believe. They were tremendous, tremendous assholes who made our city unlivable for weeks, uh, by a combination of like boorish behavior, like assaults on people in terms of like yelling at them and spitting at them and trying to remove their masks forcibly, etc. So absolutely don't want to minimize any of that. It was really, really awful. Uh, and those folks really deserve everything that's going to get thrown at them in terms of uh, the judicial process and the rest of it. Uh, I tend to agree with Etienne that, as he sort of mentioned, because we've been talking about this off and on for since it happened, that ultimately speaking, if you look at the Emergencies Act and you look at sort of the situations that it, it sort of stipulates for its own use, it's, sort of, it's very much an in extremist kind of thing. Like, if there is no other option and the, the normal, like, channels and laws that are available to governments aren't working for whatever reason uh then then break the glass and, and pull the lever i really have not been convinced by anything at the time or since that the quote the emergency such as it was was that doug ford had a, has an election in a month or two and didn't want to piss off a bunch of his voters by being seen to be too publicly forcible with them um so that's not an emergency really that's just a failure of leadership and as Etienne also said, I am really not convinced that once invoked that the act was actually material to breaking this up in any way. And I guess we will see since uh, there are sort of parallel processes ongoing right now with a parliamentary committee and a government inquiry, uh, though we haven't had any details of the inquiry. And that will be very interesting to see. I think, honestly, like, look, like this is pretty high stakes stuff when you're using emergencies legislation. And I think it was handled in a particularly unserious way by parliament. Um, like, I think particularly the NDP really embarrassed itself by giving up any leverage it had by immediately saying they were going to support it. And then were saved from a very embarrassing vote by <laughs> the government. Dis or actually, they weren't, were they? No, uh, it was it was in the Senate when the... It was in the Senate, yes. But I think it was a very different vote had it been on Saturday, the Saturday versus on the Monday, which they had delayed it for 48 hours. And by then it was sort of like done. Uh, at which case I found the support of the act completely like puzzling and baffling because it was like, what's the emergency now that these folks have been dispersed? And, you know, they're like, oh, well, they might come back. And it's like, if you look at the act, there's no stipulation in there about you can use this if it looks like it might get bad. It's if it if there is an ongoing public order emergency. So 
a lot of that was very unconvincing. I think the NDP really embarrassed itself, both on principled and political grounds. Like, it completely gave up any leverage it had by saying it would support the act immediately and basically without conditions. And then also, like, it was just... I think if you're the party, historically, of civil liberties, you can't look at the situation and be like, this is an appropriate use of emergency powers. I certainly was not convinced myself. So I, I found that to be hugely embarrassing. Uh, on the liberal side, I think it was it was fairly embarrassing there too. I think they weren't able to articulate a good rationale for why the act was necessary. The conservatives, I think, also didn't really help themselves in that they were cheering this on publicly until it started looking bad. And then they were like, oh, we think it's bad, but uh, not an emergency. And like, I think they're probably right for the wrong reasons. But yeah, at any rate, it was uh, not an edifying spectacle about uh, our governance. And uh, I think a actually well-conducted inquiry would go some way towards assuaging my concerns uh, about how we are governed as a country. Uh, I am not terribly optimistic about how that inquiry will go. If we're looking at the parallel process going on right now um, with the Nova Scotia shooting inquiry, it is descending into a bit of a circus. Uh, so I am kind of convinced that we cannot do anything well, including oversight. But here we are. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, in everything that you said there, there's a lot of threads that you know, normally I would have wished uh, that, that we had explored on various earlier episodes of the podcast. And I, I think we've explored them in conversation with each other. Um, Sadly, not recorded. Unless, uh... <laughs> I, I should take to recording our, our just off-the-cuff conversations more often. <laughs> um, join me on the, uh, the second channel of the podcast. Yeah. Uh, where I covertly record Laurent's conversations. Just just getting extremely dirty looks from both of our, our partners <laughs> as we are eating dinner and there is a microphone on the table. <laughs> so, I mean, among them, there have been, you know, more recently there was a comment by, I can't remember her name, but I believe the new National Security Advisor, um, formerly the Deputy Minister of National Defense. Jody based, Thomas. Yes who said that, you know, the intent of these individuals was insurrection or something to that effect. Yeah. And that's what mattered. Their not capability their, didn't matter. Yes, not their that capability. Was the thing. And yeah. boy, is that concerning language. Yes, yeah, so especially, like, look at this from the left-wing perspective, right? If you're if you're a bunch of flag-waving socialists and you start saying, hey, you know, we want to get rid of capitalism, it's like, you're 18 guys, you know. Like, the the like, revolution, it's like, well, right? you're, you're, yeah, you're, you're an insurrection and we're going to drone you now. Like, you know, it's, uh, well, it, it, this is really a precedent that is not good about civil liberties and freedom of assembly at all. And like, look, once again, I really want to reiterate, these guys were complete assholes and like really did actual violence against a lot of people in downtown Ottawa. Uh, and I, it is not my intention at all to minimize that. But like, if you're looking at it from a, when is it wise to use the maximal power of the state? It's like, I think you don't want to open that, that can of worms unless you really, 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 really absolutely need to. And I don't think it was demonstrated that it was really, really, really absolutely necessary. Because, so there've been a lot of <laughs> conversation. And I, and I think to, uh, to a certain extent that this, um, the month exposed a lot of people as hypocrites because in the last year there had been a lot of conversation around critical infrastructure uh, legislation, legislation that protects uh, the blocking of critical infrastructure and conversation around, you know, what is uh, legitimate protest and legitimate debate in a society such as mm -hmm. their own and what is not. And I think what you saw was a lot of people's reactions on one side or the other 
was basically could track exactly to their political party. That if you agreed with the cause, you're, the, uh, the extent to which you were willing to forgive the blocking of critical infrastructure, um, be that, you know, in this case, a lot of people reflexively say, you know, I don't think Wellington Street downtown in Ottawa is critical infrastructure. You know, point taken, there was the Ambassador Bridge, there was border crossings, there was other elements to this, um, you know, writ large. Um, but I think, you know, from the NDP perspective, we can start there and you can flip it on me on the Conservatives if you want in a minute. Um, but the blocking of rail, as we saw the year before, mm-hmm. I remember seeing headlines about Quebec being worried about running out of heating oil um, for houses in the middle of winter in, in January, February. Um, this wasn't quite the same. I mean, the, the worst part of it was probably the blocking of the Ambassador Bridge, you know, billions of dollars in trade. Uh, very comparable in many ways to the blocking of rail lines. Um, but that was cleaned up or cleared out pretty quickly um, relative to the blocking uh, of downtown Ottawa. And it was done before mm-hmm. the invocation of the emergency powers. Yes. Um, but nonetheless, we now have a precedent of the NDP supporting the yep. use of emergency powers to basically clean up a protest that blocks downtown Ottawa. I don't know what that does for the position of uh, civil liberties-minded folks. No, and I um, completely agree with during, you on this. During future protests, of course, the NDP position during the October crisis was, you know, polar opposite. Yeah, It is wisely. hard to reconcile any kind of ideological uh, consistency beyond the fact that it was kind of a popular sentiment on social media and Twitter to say, let's screw these guys, they're not in our camp, we don't care. And, I, I think you've put been, your finger on it. And that seems to be a trend with, I think, the NDP lately trying to say, we want to throw the full force of the law at whatever the challenge is on the right side of the political spectrum um, yep. without being considerate of, you know, let's say the precedent of uh, national security powers, use and abuse post 9-11. It yeah, seems absolutely. like yep. the NDP more often are calling for a, a war on terrorism um, then they're not these days, then, then they're uh, resisting yeah. that urge. I will give you another example. And it was a couple of years ago during the, the Mi'kmaq fisheries issues in Nova Scotia. And there was a, a torching of a, of a lobster pound or a, uh, I can't remember, tank house uh, that was used by Mi'kmaq fishermen. And uh, in the context of the reasonably uh, moderate livelihood fish, fishery. Yeah. Um, and the reaction of the NDP was to say, you know, we need to call this terrorism and to, and like, look, like, I appreciate that this was, you know, something in the neighborhood of a hate crime <laughs> and that it, it's bad. Uh, but like I grew up in Bush's America to me, whenever the government starts talking about we need this to be super crime because like I, I get very nervous about that. Um, I think it's it's a bad precedent. And I think like in general, like you don't really need super crime uh, to make a point about socially unacceptable activity. Uh, I think in general, as people who, you know, want there to be fewer people in prisons, uh, by and large, like, I don't know that we need to start designating various, I don't know, it just, I just, I don't really see that there's a principled way to get yourself there other than basically reacting to what's going on on social media and sort of like, always acting in the heat of the moment and never really on a principled basis. And I found that very difficult distressing at that point and i found it very distressing 
in this situation as well. I, I, I do not see a, a principled way to really get where they got. So let's... So I, I have nothing... Like I think it was embarrassing for the party, and I think they will wear it for the rest of their history so, as, a, as a mistake. So let's drop principles for a moment. Was there a political expediency? Like, did this make sense in the context of appealing to NDP voters? Like, Let, yeah, downtown I mean, Ottawa itself, no longer an NDP riding, once was... Maybe that's a small consideration, but you know, more broadly from the national picture, was this a political, uh, politically winning um, move as opposed to trying to make the more principled conversation? I would note, because I think this is important context, um, that the liberals likely would not have uh, survived the vote if the NDP had, I guess, neither abstained. Well, had they abstained, they likely would have passed. I haven't looked at so, the numbers recently. But had they voted against, I believe the bloc voted against and large swaths of the Conservative Party did. So to take that point first, I think there's a aphorism that from the, 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 the famous Tim and Eric show uh, about free real estate and how you want free real estate. And if you're on the other side of the transaction, you don't want to give up free real estate. And I think the NDP saying basically at the outset, we're going to support this was giving up free real estate because then it gave the block and the conservative the permission to be just like, no, we're not going to support it in any circumstance because they know that they're like, it's passing. So they don't need to wear the consequences of it not passing. Right. Like they've been insulated from any pressure because the NDP just decided unilaterally to give up any leverage it had about the situation, which is very, very, very stupid. And I don't understand why they did it. Um, On the sort of popular side of things, like part of this here is that the liberals are good at getting a message out because they're the government. So people on the progressive side of the political spectrum are hearing the liberals say, we want X. And then they're like, okay, well, we probably want X too, because we generally are on this side of the problem. And the conservatives are saying they want Y, so we probably don't want that. The NDP can say we actually want Z, and then that becomes an option for a lot of people. Like I think people really underrate the ability of political parties to create their own realities, or at least I think they do at the NDP, because I don't see the liberals or conservatives being particularly shy about just creating options out of whole cloth sometimes. Um, and I, I think that's like, yes, it was like, I think they didn't give themselves room to articulate an argument about why this is bad from their perspective. And they completely ceded the argument to the liberals, which is why it was popular. Uh I think there was room for them to do something different and whether through lack of imagination or I don't know what they decided not to do that. And I think it was very costly and dumb. So I I have nothing nice to say about the way the NDP handled this really. Very good. Uh, No, I, I, (laughs) I, I think a lot, there is still a lot of this story to be written. Obviously it's being superseded by global events right now. Um, but you know, the details of the inquiry, the details of how the powers were used and what their practical applications were. Um, you know, yeah, so that's some another of this we'll never of this. know. We'll never know. I think how many folks packed up and went home on the basis of the threat of yeah. the financial sanctions alone. Um, you know, most of those financial sanctions were lifted basically virtually immediately. I don't know if there's longer term impacts on, for instance, uh, commercial trucking insurance. Um, there haven't actually been a, a lot of stories about that, a lot of kind of long-term reporting on the, the impacts one way or another um, mm-hmm. in terms of those who are involved in the protest were, you know, the, the lingering tales at the moment seem to be around 
uh, a few of the leaders in their court cases and bail, yeah. bail and <laughs> and those side of things but in a way you know that's less impactful than the kind of I'll say the grassroots people who were there and yeah. what pressures were placed on them when and when they made their decisions I think it's very different than the leaders who are obviously you know the most extreme cases um, and were the least likely to budge you know until they were literally arrested yeah and on, on that subject too like i or on the sort of previous subject like i think part of the like if you're the legislature and the government says we have to basically like override the laws that you as the legislature pass except for this one which we want to use because of x and then they're like okay what's the proof of x and they say trust us then it's like i think it's really incumbent on you as the legislature to say uh-uh like we're we're not doing this on the on your say so like you need to actually show the goods here and i don't know what went on like i don't know if there were like briefings and if there were like what was said at them like i don't know what kind of evidence was presented that was so compelling to jagmeet singh's ndp that was so uncompelling to the block and to um the conservatives like i don't know i i think it yeah it's it's very baffling and um i uh I wonder what will happen and what will shake out with a lot of these folks. I get, honestly, I think it will not be much except for a handful of the, the Pat Kings of the world and uh, some of the other ringleaders. I think most people will probably just be, you know, let, let go and will not have any action taken against them for any of the stuff they did while they were here, which is honestly unfortunate, but there you go. I think uh, we've set ourselves up very nicely for next time. Yeah. Oh, and just, yeah. And to speak of also, um, on the subject of what you were talking about earlier with like the NDP's position on this in terms of like the hypocrisy of, of you know, um, of their position on this versus the rail lines. Like I do, I do think it's funny that uh, the position of the conservative party through this was basically that if you, if you go somewhere and you make life intolerable for the people who live there, the prime minister owes you a conversation. Like hostage taking works, and you should respect hostage takers. <laughs> so I deliberately left the door wide open for you yes. at, at the beginning of this conversation. No, no, and I, I wanted to deal with what yeah, you were yeah, saying yeah. first. But to come back yeah. through that door, and of course, yes. I mean, we could go into you know the conservative side of this uh, at length. I don't think we necessarily need to. Up to you. No, I think we've covered a lot of ground, but um, I think we can at least briefly discuss it here. Yeah. But, you know, I think there is, as I said, this has made hypocrites of everyone in terms of these positions. There are a lot of asses hanging out right now uh, for, um, for all to see. Yes, a lot of it indefensible. I think one thing I will say, and it's something I've been you know, thinking about for a while, and it probably deserves a longer conversation. Um, but is the difference in terms of, one, having protests and two, embracing protests? Um, depending on where you lie on the political spectrum. Let me make this math kind of simple. Um, generally, the people who protest in Canada tend to be, by and large, I think if you were to, to graph it out, tend to be left-wing. I think left-wing politicians um, gravitate to protests you know, from labor roots and things like that. And, that. and that is a core part of political advocacy on the left. Mm -hmm. Centrists, and the liberals, I think, um, don't see as much, but like to roll themselves in it when those protests get very popular and they become kind of uh, national level events. 
they'll be out on sure, the streets. Sure, climate march, women's march. Yeah, they'll be out on the streets with the protesters saying, it doesn't matter that we're government and we're protesting the government, but we hear you, we feel you, we dig it, <laughs> we're, we're one and the same, we're part of this movement, vote for us. Yes. Um, and they're able to do that effectively. You know, Trudeau, during the BLM, went down, went down on one knee in the yeah. crowd, and there's examples of that. On I, the right, we we are we can only be thankful he ch- he chose that method to express solidarity and not others that have previously been part of his arsenal. Extremely fair. <laughs> um, on the right side of the spectrum, you don't have protests as often, um, nor for the same reasons. You tend to have protests when folks are incredibly angry about a given issue. Um, and the tendency towards extremism in a lot of the protests as a result, um, I think particularly in this day and age, the polarization of social media, conspiracy theories, and what have you, forms a larger part of the coalition of folks who are willing to protest at events on the right. Because I find people on the right wing are not predisposed to um, you know, social activism um, in terms of getting out and protesting in front of legislatures or marching in the streets or what have you in quite the same way. Um, but in terms of how that impacts, you know, politicians, I think politicians generally want to go to protests. They want to feel, um, you know, the energy of a crowd. They want to feel like their side is right and it's mobilizing people and it's populous and their message are resonating. Um, but if you think about it, with the exception of Campaign for Life Coalition, which is, you know, the major um, right wing um, social conservative protest that happens on the Hill and is one of the flashpoints in which you see all the social conservative um, MPs go and speak and mm-hmm. rub elbows at, that one of the reasons why this protest got so much support among conservative caucus was because, you know, there aren't a lot of protests and they don't feel like they're in the position to pick and choose which protests that they can support. That when a protest rolls up to town, uh, when truckers roll across the country, they say, well, you know, there's not going to be another one of these this year. Um, it's a little simplistic, um, but I think folks want to feel they're part of a popular movement. And if that option presents itself, you know, five, ten times a year, then you're more likely to pick and choose. And if it's once a year and if it's a little dodgier, then uh, you're less likely to, to pick and choose and you're more likely to uh, not err on the side of caution in terms of picking your allegiances more more tightly. Yeah, and I mean, look, like we've we sort of pointed to the idea that within the Conservative Caucus, there there is a deep bench of people who have pretty out there opinions on a wide variety of subjects uh, who get elected very, very easily because of how uncompetitive a lot of the seats are. And how hard it is to recruit quality candidates for, like, middle of nowhere Saskatchewan because no one wants to, like, commute out there (laughs) who doesn't already live there. Uh, And I think just a lot of these guys believe it and thought it was cool and fun. And uh, so, but not, like, not everyone. I remember Pierre Paulus, uh, who's one of their Quebec members, was like, you got to go home. This is done. Like, you guys are basically, you know, attacking this community. Like, get out. Uh, and yet others, including leadership candidates who are much keener to associate themselves with it, uh, while sort of saying, like, oh, but I don't condone all the bad stuff, <laughs> which is, like, pretty good as as a bit. Um, I mean, but, yes. there, there is a certain element that happens of this on both sides. No, sure, but, like, it's a little rich to say, like, I don't condone the bad stuff when it's been, like, weeks and weeks and weeks of ongoing bad stuff. It's not, like... 
you show up and there's like one guy being kind of a dick like it it yeah it was hard to swallow that excuse i take your point i take your point but i i just think it's a it's usually a question of degree that we're talking about here and this was uh very 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 degreed we we can keep this in mind when there's a a a specific example to the contrary that comes up in future where i'll I'll take you up on talking about uh, levels of degree but uh that's a 30 minute conversation for what was not supposed to be a 30 minute conversation as usually happens with our our (laughs) planned segments so what what else did we have on the uh on the paper form there um did you want to talk about the lobbying stuff now or did we have something else oh see well conservative party leadership i think was the ah yes right (laughs) was the the other big thing that's going well i'm sure we can do that in 10 minutes (laughs) um because i feel like it was only three episodes ago that we had aaron o'toole um on the podcast yeah uh, three or four it might have been four yeah three or four episodes ago that we had him on the podcast and you know a lot has happened since then how time flies um I mean, I expect everyone to roughly be familiar with it, so I'm not going to go through it at necessarily the same level of detail as if some of this stuff were just happening. Um, you know, the outlines of the race are quickly coming together. Um, Charette, Patrick Brown, and Pierre Polyev seem to be the big names. Leslie uh, Lewis. Um, there are folks like Leslie Lewis on the Hey, periphery. she got she actually got the most raw votes in the second round. I think she's going to do a lot worse this time. I I mean, okay, like, strictly on the basis of rules changes, she is set up to do better than she did last time. Yes, but now she's more of a known quantity. I mean, it might just be for my, my bubble in Ottawa, but the people I knew... <laughs> who were like, yeah, she's great. <laughs> ...who supported Leslin and marked her number one, I don't think are likely to do that again. Um, in part because of you know things like her National Post op-ed where she talked about the socialist revolution, the bloodless socialist. I might be putting at least one word in her mouth there. It was like Justin Trudeau microchip stuff. Yes, I recall. Yeah, yeah. 5G towers, social credit scores, yeah. things along those lines. Um, You've heard it all. That's one example of I think many since um, yeah. since she became an MP of kind of being on the uh, the fringe of things. Um, but I think the challenge for her and how this might, um, wane is if she does not do as good as the first time around, which the first time around, she basically hit a home run. Uh, this go around, if she ends up just fifth, I think her political capital within the party and the, the perception of her as having, um, weight to throw around quickly wanes. Yeah. Um, and she, uh, you know, is. Yeah. I mean, I would say just in terms of where she actually got votes, uh, I would not be quick to suggest that evidence of craziness is going to hurt her a lot there. Yes, but I would also... <laughs> so if you're talking about like the prairies, um, I would suggest a lot of those voters are going to be firmly in the Polyev camp. Um, yeah, I think that's pretty likely in that I there is a more compelling right-wing In a Peter yeah. McKay versus Aaron O'Toole matchup, there was less Agreed. likely to be... Um, for those voters to to skew towards either one of them. So I think it's a I very different race dynamic, um, mm-hmm. which will result in uh, much less favorable results for her. And it's yes. also looking, you know, TBD for when uh, the bills come due and folks actually have to pay their $100,000 or $200,000 deposit. Um, you know, how many people announced now will actually be in the race? 
um, but it looks like it's going to be more than you know basically the three the three way race it was last time. Who knows if you know the fringe guy? I can't even remember his name. Joseph Borgo. Yes, if Joseph Borgo will still be in the race talking about vac- vaccines or something, but I, I yes. highly doubt it. But who knows? So yes, I tend to agree. All those say three way race um, broadly. Um, you know, there was a Toronto Star piece about Charette and Brown having a secret uh, allegiance. Um, you know, I think everyone broadly expects that voters from one will go to the other, depending on who's on top. So I think it'll be a, a big push for both of them to outcompete. Um, because if one is under the other, then you don't get to benefit from their support in the ranked ballot system. Um, so there's very much going to be a bit of a head-to-head rivalry there. Um, but one in which you're hoping not to alienate the other's voters, and then a sharp contrast between that kind of two-part camp and the Polyev camp. And uh, so far, there's lots of uh, punches being thrown. Um, yes. And uh, things are getting pretty spicy. I alluded to a rules change earlier, and I just want to spell that out for listeners. Uh, historically, how the race has worked has been that every riding in the country gets 100 points. And that you get a number of points basically equal to the percentage of your vote in that writing. So let's say you get 33% of the vote in a given writing, you get 33 points. Uh, How this could frequently be used to candidates' advantage was that in writings with very few members, obviously if you're able to sign up a few members in that writing, you can get a lot of points for very little um, organizing effort and money. Uh, compared to, you know, writing associations in Alberta where there are like 5,000 members, where each individual vote is not going to help you very much. One in, you know, a, a writing in like, I don't know, like nor- you know, northern Quebec or something where there's like 18 conservatives who live there. Um, if you sign up like 20 people, that's a lot of points that outweigh, you know, 2,000 voters in Alberta. So last convention, the party voted to change this where you now get basically as many points as you have voters up to the 100 cap and then at 100 it stops counting up but basically if you have a riding with you know 18 conservative members then they get 18 points and not a single one more so it just it dilutes the influence of that sort of like kind of gaming you could do uh with with writings that have very few members uh so it still you know incentivizes you to go after them because they might still be worth more points per vote um but it's it's definitely blunted the impact of that. Yeah, it makes it, I mean, presuming that Charest has the strongest base of support in Quebec, um, it weakens his likelihood of getting uh, points in Quebec. It means he has to do more work in order to register basically a minimum of 100 voters in each riding if he yeah, wants to get the full which is the full point It's not a tallies. ton of people. Yeah, it's not a ton of people. It's totally doable for a guy with Joshua's campaigning experience, etc. Like, I, I don't really think it's, like, likely that we're going to end up with a lot of writings that have a lot less than that. But, yeah. Yeah, I've, I haven't seen that those stats um, I, in a while um, to know how many writings were under that 100 point. Uh, yeah, and I have a threshold from the last race, but here we are. I did take a look at the numbers the other day, but it was for another thing and not for this specifically. So, alas. But, yeah, that will... I don't think that will be like a huge impact one way or the other, but it does change the dynamics a little bit in terms of where campaigns will spend resources organizing. Yeah. Do you want to talk? 
candidates generally like what's the ups like the sort of uh weaknesses strengths of kind of the the big three as we, i think we've already sort of done les and lewis so uh <laughs> we can talk about the other the other big three i mean polyev is polyev i think he is a very well-known quantity um the concern with him obviously is whether or not he'll be appealing in the general um whether he can pivot from being the trigger the libs guy um into being you know prime ministerial material um you know you don't always have to do that in canadian politics sometimes the public just grows tired of uh the prime minister the premier whoever it is and is willing to vote for whoever the opposition is um but it does as a starting point it does make it a much steeper hill to climb in terms of broadening the tent uh you know conventional logic about broadening the tent um by appealing to liberal supporters as well as um you know kind of that majority or bust um mentality that the conservatives had for a little while of the unlikelihood of finding themselves being supported by the ndp um but the ndp seems to be supporting whatever these days so uh (laughs) (laughs) who knows knows? that might prove wrong um so i mean yeah that's kind of the high level i've I haven't spoken about it in a while, but, you know, ages and ages ago, we talked about this, talked about how Pierre Polyev, um, one, for those not familiar with his recent history, he does have the ability to come across as charming, speaking to the common man in a way that those who watch him too closely on Parliament Hill uh, might be mm-hmm. surprised by. Um, so I'd say look for some of that in the debates for kind of his appeal to, like, uh, his appeal and his way of speaking in a way that, you know, is much more normal um, and appeals to normal people in a way that, for instance, the prime minister's um, sentences that do not mean anything um, uh, won't. Uh, the example I can give is a speech he one time gave to a bunch of conservative political staffers was talking about, you know, on, on infrastructure. This was kind of the, the thesis of it. When you talk about infrastructure, you know, average Canadians don't know what infrastructure is talking said about bridges and roads and make it appealing to them. And I think you can see that in a lot of the videos he's putting out where he's trying to appeal to the, the pocket ish, uh, pocketbook issues in a very tangible way to people. Um, I think we have to continue to watch that to see how that develops over the course of the race. On the other two, I think, yeah. Oh, can, do you want, can I talk about Polyev a little yeah, bit go ahead. before we, we jump over? Yeah, I, I think he is, like I've talked about before, he is the, the, the best shaman of the conservative id alive in Canada. Uh, but I also think he's, like, as you say, like, I've been really impressed by the stuff he's put out in terms of, like, I think it's very, very effective stuff. Um, and I think he's a very, very good communicator. And I think people who think that he is unelectable in a general election are probably wrong. Uh, I think he very much, the way his like his style is i think very would be very very effective against a a platitude driven trudeau and saying um who are allergic to saying anything uh, at any point uh so yeah no i think he uh, he has the inside track to win the leadership and i think he could very 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 well win a general i think it would be very very stupid of anyone to count him out ahead of time so um i mean he is where i would put my chips in terms of uh if we were at a roulette wheel with slices on it um Mm -hmm. i would probably put 90 plus percent odds on um polyev at this point although if you speak to people in the shirek camp 
Um, they will tell you that, you know, this guy is a campaigner. He's going to crush him easily. Uh, I guess maybe Tom Mulcair is uh, campaigning for him, the, the co-director <laughs> will, of his campaign. He will win easily, <laughs> um, as Tom promised, yeah. So, I mean, those who aren't familiar with him, I won't repeat his CV here. I would say read Wikipedia. Um, obviously comes from sort of the old PC party roots. Um, Quebec. Oh, he was leader of the PC party. Yeah, <laughs> you can track <laughs> yes. that genealogy pretty, pretty directly. Um, Quebec liberal premier, um, etc. Um, there are really creepy photos of Patrick Brown with Charette posters all over his room from the late nineties, um, yeah. early nineties. Um, no, mid mid nineties, late nineties. I guess it would have been. Um, so all of that to say. Uh, he's come out of the gates, as I joked on Twitter, uh, very low energy, but maybe that's just good fuel efficiency. Um, yeah. had a kind of Stefan Zion-esque hostage video as his foray onto Twitter. Um, launch Terrible. party in Calgary, well, bold location-wise, seemed to draw about, uh, 35 people. Um, so not the most grassroots campaign. I do wonder how far away his campaign is going to be from, like, a a large urban center dinner party off where he just has old PCs <laughs> from from back in the day around the Remember table Joe Clark having dinner parties talking about Joe Clark and Brian Mulrooney yeah. and, and the good old days. Uh, maybe I'm dismissing him. I haven't watched him campaign. I've never uh, you know, had that experience, uh, with the exception of just kind of watching yeah. uh, the shit show that unfolded in Quebec with the uh, the aptly named Maple Spring. Um, yes. Once upon a time. Um, so I don't put a lot of stake myself into Shirez's ability to win in the modern conservative party. Um, other folks seem to have drank in the syrup and seem to be uh, <laughs> willing to bet that he's going to take this easily. So maybe maybe I'm yeah. outside there. I would I would posit this campaign through the the prisms of two recent American campaigns. Uh, the first one is is Jeb Bush. Um, and largely because Jeb was told by all of his people that he could win, I think largely so those people could then make money off his campaign. <laughs> so I will I will now close the book on that prism. But to food for thought. Uh, the second one is of course Sleepy Joe Biden. Uh, and I think the the one thing here is that Sleepy Joe had, if you really think about it, almost nothing going for him as a candidate. Uh, he was barely lucid. Uh, had no discernible policy platform beyond I was Obama's vice president and was asleep for most of that time. Um, and that was pretty much it. However, he is now president. So, you know, stranger things is, I guess, what I would say. Uh, if you watch Succession, you might have made a, a Connor Roy reference there. But here here we are in terms of... Uh, I don't watch Succession. Uh, so. Folks who, who exist for their, uh, for their staffers to make a buck off of them. Yes. Um... Yeah, we'll see. I mean, all, all we can do is wait and see. I have a beer bet on it. Um, yeah. And uh, and then, the, which I guess brings us to Patrick Brown, which who for me is basically like, you know, I really like Sharae, but I don't think he's corrupt enough. And uh, I think that there might be a lane there. <laughs> or creepy enough. I don't... Yeah, I don't... <laughs> Just generally unsavory. Like, I, I watch Sharae, but, like, worse as a person. Can, can we do that? Yeah, I really struggle with... <laughs> Um, Patrick Brown's background, track record, ex well, not experience, All of it. but <laughs> a lot of it. Um, yeah. 
his time as PC How, leader was, I think, yeah. uh, PC leader in Ontario was uh, broadly bad, um, as well as the CTV reporting and the allegations that yes. have been uh, not quite entirely backtracked, but you know the settlement that some folks are pointing to. Um, it none of that gives you a good feeling. Um, here, but, totally vindicated apostrophe <laughs> or it's not apostrophe asterisk, asterisk. Yes. <laughs> just uh please do not look at the details of how i am totally exonerated yeah generally not a lot of good stuff going on there i, and, I mean the, the uh, thing we'll see patrick but, brown uh arguably he has um his own base of support particularly in and around the gta and if nothing else um you know has the potential to sign up tens of thousands of members yeah. Um, yeah. T- yeah. TBD, whether or not he, he executes on that, but that potential is certainly there, and it is certainly an asset for um, either himself or Charette. If Charette does not sign yeah. up tens of thousands of members, ends up having uh, 12 dudes around a dinner table in a fancy restaurant that end up being the only people he ever signs up, um, then it yes. may well be Patrick Brown uh, versus Polyev on the final ballot just because he out-campaigns his, uh, his idol, so... So an interesting thing with uh, Patrick Brown is, I think it was yesterday, secured the endorsement and participation as campaign co-chair of Michelle Rempel, uh, which was very striking uh, for someone with her track record on on feminism issues to support Patrick Brown, who has his track record on feminism issues, let's say. Um, so that was striking. And the other thing is, I just I, I think of Patrick Brown largely as a as a tragic figure in the Greek sense in Canadian politics, and that he's he's clearly an incredibly talented politician, uh, and he's he's a killer organizer. Um, and, and I mean, really, like it takes some something to go from MP of Barry to leader of the Ontario PC Party to disgraced former leader of the Ontario PC party, to mayor of Brampton, a city he had, as far as I understand, no connection to (laughs) before running to be mayor. Uh, Or perhaps if he had a connection, it was tenuous at best. Like, he didn't live there. He had been a counselor, and I'm trying to remember what town he was a counselor in. Probably Barrie, where he was an MP beforehand. Yes, Barrie City Council. Yeah, so very, very odd. Uh, Barry and Brampton, for uh, people who don't know GTA geography, are not exactly right next to each other, so very odd. At any rate, a, a clearly extremely talented man, only really outdone by his talent for self-destruction, uh, which, as we have seen, is is considerable as well. So, uh, yeah, we'll see what happens there. Uh, but definitely the wild card, I think, compared to, uh, to Charette and uh, Polio's uh, sort of freight train of destruction. Uh so let me uh let me put my forecasting uh hat on just because i like i'll i will only accept this if it's super forecasting i I'm, I'm i don't willing, want regular I'm willing forecasting. to be held accountable i'm gonna say that brown beats charette on the ballot and that it ends up being a brown polyev and that polyev takes it on the final ballot or does he even get there well i mean he of course he's gonna take it on the final ballot well i'm not he's <laughs> by gonna definition. take it on the final ballot it could well be um it could well be the other way it could be oh i thought you were trying ballot. to i thought you were trying to predict on which ballot he would win in which case saying the final one is obviously uh, a bit of a cop by final one there i meant <laughs> in the double elimination yes not on the the one v one yes not not the not the first round or something like that Sure. Uh, although I, I do maintain that it is completely plausible that Polyev just wins on the first round and blows everyone out of the water. I think that is um, a 
not crazy prospect um, by any means. So we'll see. I think the the first uh, indication to be looking for is the membership claims that the various parties make um, when this thing kicks off of saying, you know, this is how many um, folks we've registered. And if Patrick Brown is out registering people by an order of magnitude, then I think it'll be... Uh, I mean, I have seen that movie before and it ends up with you winning on the first ballot. Yes. So. Spicy <laughs> race to watch. That was, of yes. course, a reference to Jagmeet Singh in the, uh, in the NDP leadership. Indeed, the time I got my ass kicked. <laughs> so, there you go. Me and others, to be fair. Fair. It was not just you. Um, okay, so let's let's wrap up the uh, the discussion of the conservative leadership. We did that in about eighteen minutes, which is pretty good. Yeah, that's not too bad. That's restrained. That, that that's leaves restrained. us uh, twelve odd minutes to talk about the ins and outs of the lobbying commissioner's Woo! Uh, lobbying code of conduct or the lobbyist code of conduct. Yes. Um, so shall I set the table? Sure. Do you want me you to? Can, sure. Please make the table. Have you have you brought so the as, of course. So as, as longtime fans of this podcast will know, in 2006, Stephen Harper was elected to clean up Ottawa. And one of the things he did was pass the Federal Accountability Act, of which we have probably devoted more time on this podcast to any other single subject. Uh, because part the two really important parts of that act were sort of broken out into the Conflict of Interest Act and the Lobbying Act. Uh, and the Lobbying Act as, includes a, a portion of it that is called the Lobbying Code of Con- or the Lobbyists, rather, Code of Conduct. Uh, so there are specific rules and statutory requirements. There's the commissioner that's sort of like stipulated in the act, etc. One part is the code of conduct that is written by the commissioner sort of to act as an appendix to the law. Um, I'm sure there, the relationship of the code is more, there's a word for it that isn't appendix, but I think that's a reasonable way to think about it. So the appendix or the... <laughs> Appendix. The code was last updated in 2015, and the commissioner has recently put out a proposed new code or proposed revisions to the code uh, in the last couple of months that have now received a round of public comment, uh, which is what brings us to this. Um, so, yeah, Etienne, you can take it from there. Thank you. I would just uh, add one piece that. Um... I, I, I forgot the napkins after all. No, I, I don't want to leave folks with the mistaken impression that there was no lobbying rules in advance of the Federal Accountability Act. Um, there were various pieces of lobbying legislation that go back to, I think, the 80s, um, 89 or something. For more, like read the insiders. <laughs> yeah, at the Lobbyist <laughs> Registration Act, which they talk about as being, I think they called it like the business card bill, where basically the information that you registered was the kind of stuff that you would find on a business card. Um, but nonetheless, pretty useful stuff. Um, so the lobbying commissioner has put out a draft code of conduct. You know, when you see these things often, you know, this one is a a fairly significant, I would say restructuring of a lot of parts um, and rewording of things, um, which in and itself, I feel like there's, you know, often just busy work happening with these things, um, where folks feel the need to update for update's sake. But there's a few significant changes. Um, And it should be noted that the code is not as strong as the act. And of course, updated via different means. The code is just at the discretion of the lobbying commissioner. um, Whereas the act, of course, is at the discretion of of parliament. 
Uh, and of if course, it ever gets around to it. And of course, <laughs> the act is uh, subject to a, a five-year statutory review that no one, uh, that everyone has forgotten about because it was overdue several years ago, um, largely because yes. it's an awkward topic for the government. Um, nonetheless, so the big changes. There is a few, generally I'd say three things. One, there's changes around um, relationships. There's changes around... Um, I think it's sense of obligation um, and around political work. And we can start with any of them. Let's start with um, the gifts and hospitality. Well, no. Okay. No, no, no. You want to do, do dessert first? No, let's, let's start with the political work. Um, yeah, well, meat and potatoes. Section. Meat and potatoes. Sure. Yeah. Um, so the commissioner puts in new rules for, in this code, puts in new rules for political work which is defined into two different categories, other political work and significant political work, significant political work, including like designating a spokesperson, being a campaign manager, serving as a key agent, kind of like what an outsider would presume to be the very important jobs are, uh, which yeah. is somewhat reminiscent of some of the, the grassroots um, lobbying provisions and how they distinguish between like being the organizer of a campaign and the person handing out a pamphlet. And they've kind mm -hmm. of done that again here. Um, but what's most notable about this in terms of the political work is you used to be able to do political work for uh, an MP, um, well, an MP candidate. Um, and unless you created a sense of obligation was, I believe, the language that was used in the, the former code, yes. um, yeah. then you could um, proceed to lobby them. And what created a sense of obligation was was kind of on a case-by-case -case basis if you were the campaign manager for someone i think it was well understood that you were um creating a sense of obligation or if you're a big fundraiser mm -hmm. or whatever it is it's important to note in all of this that fund uh, actually donating to candidates has been removed by the commissioner um, as not creating a sense of obligation so there's this weird dynamic where donating sixteen hundred dollars to someone doesn't uh, but campaigning with them does i don't see that as necessarily odd i mean camp being a campaign manager for someone is i would hesitate to put a price tag on it but i would definitely put it north of sixteen hundred dollars okay but under this new rule if you work directly with a candidate to prepare their speeches or prepare them for a debate mm -hmm. um which you know less than sixteen less than sixteen hundred dollars <laughs> of the work <laughs> organizing a political fundraiser that's fine performing activities listed in other political work uh which just based on volume yeah. so which is to say like being an office manager in a campaign office uh might if you're spending a lot of time doing it be considered significant political work even though otherwise it might be other but then in the other political work we have drafting campaign materials, canvassing, seeking or gathering donations, distribution of campaign materials. Oh, that could be leafleting, right? Yeah, that could be uh, lit drops. But now we have other political work has a threshold associated with it of 12 it? months. Yes. Oh, sorry. You mean the cooling off? Yeah. So there's... Yeah. Sorry. I haven't explained this perfectly. So basically what the commissioner said... <laughs> Is that if you do one of if you do political work, you are subject to one of two cooling work. off periods. A cooling yeah, off yes, period of yes. either twenty four months or twelve months. Very strange yeah. that she has devised these and they're not 
you know, structured off of the other cooling off periods we have, but here we are. Um, and so if you drop literature for someone, you can get a 12 month cooling off period where you can't lobby not only that person, but that person and their portfolio associates. associates. Yeah. Associates being, it could be like, if you are, if you knocked on doors for uh, François-Philippe Champagne, there are a lot of people you can't call for a year despite never having interacted with them. Yes, that, that's, <laughs> you know, we can talk about edge cases, but it's not unrealistic to believe that someone is going to um, do, and not only Francois-Philippe Champagne. Any of their staffers. You like... door knock for someone in British Columbia who becomes the parliamentary secretary or one of the 15 ministers that they seem to have under the umbrella of ISED. And suddenly yeah. you can't lobby that person. So it creates a much broader apprehension uh, around volunteering um, for... Uh, yeah, in, in fact, can I read the definition of associate uh, for the record here? Please do. So in relation to ministers, ministers of state and parliamentary secretaries, uh, so ministers, junior ministers and parlsecs, includes their staff and other parliamentarians as well as their staff serving within the same ministerial portfolio. That is a lot of people. Yes. <laughs> that, like you had you had literally no control over like whether they ended up where they did, right? Possibly if they were if it's like a new government or something. So it's uh it's pretty broad. Uh and like look, like I think the lobbying act is there for very good reasons. Um and I think the code of conduct is there for very good reasons. I am kind of unclear on precisely how this is like I think, generally speaking, when you're drafting laws, you should be trying to fix problems as economically as possible. And I think this is really, once again, you're, you're kind of hunting a, a fly with a cannon here. Is uh, this, this is a big crater you're leaving for what could potentially be, once again, dropping off literature, which is a task that basically campaign managers and voter contact people on campaigns really only make people do begrudgingly because they don't want to do anything else yes that is 100 uh, like it is not even con I, I will i will really hasten to add here it is not an activity that anyone associated with campaign considers particularly useful or helpful to the campaign well i, I would go with that <laughs> like it, i would say i would like i would <laughs> the value of it is either you are sending someone to drop off literature at doors because there's the logic of like you need to have con make 12 contact points or whatever it's yes. these days with voters for them to stick in their mind blah 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 and this type of lit drop is a uh, is one of those contact points Etienne, let's, let's, however, let's take, however let's four volunteers sec, Go there ahead. is actual dollar value on this because canada post will do this work for you at a price <laughs> of i haven't looked at this lately but less than it costs to send a piece of mail it counts as yeah. what unaddressed ad mail and uh, call yeah. it 20 cents a door. Um, if your volunteers are doing this, it is, you know, it's the, uh, we have nothing better for them to do. Let's have them drop off flyers. But I want to compare that against political work that does not count, which is what's interesting, which is strictly performing administrative tasks, such as occasional uh, work stuffing on envelopes, a weird inclusion there of temporal language, which is not used in other things, um, or mm -hmm. taking phone messages. One of the you know really important parts of a campaign office is actually the folks who sit at the desk um, and take the phone messages, uh, often related to 
um, key constituents or people wanting to make donations or what have you, um, or the stuffing of envelopes or the other administrative work. There's a lot of administrative work on campaigns. Yes. Um, so much of it, much more valuable than lit drops. Yes. And so it's kind of. <laughs> I would actually, I would rather have someone stuff envelopes than do a lit drop. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> Which is like why I said it's kind of like an outsider's perspective of like, here yes. are the things that we we deem would probably be important. Um, yes. So it's all... And it's funny because it is, it is I can see from an outsider, the difference between a lit drop and canvassing is like, well, they're, they're going door to door with stuff. What's the difference? And it's like, a good canvasser is worth their weight in gold. A lit drop is like, what, well, I don't need this. Like, what, what, like fine, go do this. Yeah, it's, Whatever. it's like, busy work. It's... Yeah. Yeah, it's very funny just for yes it's uh it's an amusing sort of like yeah as you say someone who doesn't really know how politics works trying to define what political work is. and so and let's go back to the cooling period so there's there's the two proposed cooling periods one of 24 months um yes and one is 12 months um you know in a minority situation where people are presuming that governments last for 24 months 18 yeah yeah for less than 24 months it's a significant chunk of time um and 12 months even is a significant chunk of time for the threshold of dropping off campaign literature once um yeah so i think it creates a chill on folks who work in the advocacy world um yeah from volunteering on campaigns and you can say yeah, like it... um oh well <clears throat> you know take it and shove it ottawa lobbyists uh, yes. But there are a lot of people at nonprofits, at organizations across unions, across Canada, <laughs> uh, outside of the Ottawa bubble who do this type of yeah. work. Um, and it can have a you know very real impact. So I think these thresholds yes. and the cooling off periods are something to be taken you know quite seriously. Yes. That is exactly what I was thinking. It's like I'm sure someone listening to this is thinking like, oh, well, if the CEO of Suncor can't blah, blah, blah. It's like the CEO of Suncor, for one, is A, never going to manage a campaign. Why the fuck would he do that? That's a total waste of his time. Uh, and like no that's why the donating $1,600 yeah exactly exactly and that's totally fine but like let's say you're the you know the the CEO of like a non-profit that like works with like I don't know refugee resettlement and you 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 know you feel really strongly about this issue and you you go help out on a campaign and then you go back to your day job and whoops uh turns out you can actually no longer do your day job uh because it involves you know like 20 percent or more of one fte's time is spent lobbying officials at ircc or whomever like and now you are you're screwed so like it's a real chill on what is a a free speech and democratic rights issue uh that i think should be taken much more seriously than the commissioner seems to be taking it here I think this was really written with consultant lobbyists in mind, where consultant lobbyists I don't even think are the majority of lobbyists. Yeah, it'd be... I've never seen anything really quantifying that, but... I've never seen it... But my sense is, like, there are a lot of associations in this country that do a little bit of lobbying, so... So let's talk about one of the other... Well, let's actually do two other changes, and then we'll wrap things up. Um, yeah. Close relationships is a section that is updated... Um, and the new language reads, never lobby an official with whom you share a close relationship. And then, I'm trying to find the old code. One sec to find the comparator language. Um, the close relationship is then defined. Um, this includes close family, personal, working, business, or financial relationships. Yeah. Uh, and most of those are how you would understand, like strong friendships close family by blood marriage whatever 
financial relationships, like, you know, you co-own property, business relationship, you co-own a business. But working is the one that's odd here. Yes. So go ahead. So working relationships is defined as including having closely collaborated for a common goal or having formed a prominent or long-standing close professional relationship, such as being partners, colleagues, or allies in the same office. So let me read that again. Colleagues in the same office or allies in the same. I don't know what an ally is in an office, but here we are. Um, yeah, if you're reading this like inclusively, like I think usually legal language is read. The, what Aten just said, colleagues in the same office is like a way you can read this, which is. I mean, that is the way I read it. I, that's I don't know. A, yeah. No, I'm just saying one, one could infer this. Sitting together uh, on but, a board of directors or delivering a program or service. There are so yeah. many confusing examples that could potentially come out of this. Um, so let, let me give you an example from delivering a program or service. Folks partner with the government of Canada to deliver programs or services. Um, how does, th and they also lobby them around those programs or services um, because they're looking for changes or more money or what have you. How does that work? Um, let me give you a more ridiculous example. If I worked at Boston Pizza with someone 20 years ago. <laughs> Here it goes. <laughs> like, honest to God, if I worked with someone um, towards a common goal of creating a uh, tropical chicken pizza, um, and I find that suddenly they're working the minister's office wherever, um, can I not lobby them on the basis of that working relationship we shared making a pizza 20 some odd years ago? And the answer and you don't here know. You don't know. <laughs> is yes. But more interestingly, because it's about a relationship and the relationships, especially working relationships, is defined so broadly, the commissioner hasn't included any kind of timeline around it. Where with the Yeah, unlike the political work. Yeah, the political which is, work has, has a, the cooling off period that's defined. Yes. Yeah. But it makes sense that you don't have cooling off periods for family relationships. Um, yeah. but if you were closely collaborating on a goal with someone um, uh, group projects in university yeah exactly <laughs> i don't there, know there are, like, yeah there are, but the thing is that the commissioner doesn't have answers right there like, are mps this stuff is not who are obvious. literally students at universities right now um or yeah. working on their masters or what have you and if folks work with them because they're put in a group together does that count as closely collaborating towards a common goal like a plain reading would say yes because it doesn't even stipulate that it has to be remunerated. So, yeah, I don't see any reason why you would not take that as... Anyway, it's it's a very over... Once again, it's not exactly an economical way to deal with the problem <laughs> in terms of legislative drafting. And, like, boards, uh, boards is another one because often MPs are prominent members of the community before they're elected. And some of them actually... Mm -hmm. I'd have to brush up. Some folks, I can't remember if it's MPs, remain on boards in some capacities or whatever. Um, but if you're on a board of, you know, some boards are quite large, say 30 odd people, and one of them gets elected, all of a sudden that organization potentially could not, you know, would be in a very difficult part trying to talk to government about their issues. Yeah, um, or once again, if, let's say, let's say once again, you're the, so poorly for them. yeah, if you're the refugee resettlement executive director and you're on a board of, you know, and this MP who you, you didn't work on their campaign, but you're on a board of, of an organization that works on this kind of stuff. And then they get elected, and it's like, well, shit, now I can't talk to the federal government about and this. And your like, relationship is considered more problematic by the commissioner. Even though you worked on the board, 
you maybe never spoke with that person a single time outside of that board meeting. Maybe you never addressed each other. You don't even know, you know, each other's kids' names or anything. That relationship mm-hmm. is considered in perpetuity more challenging uh, lobbying-wise or ethically than the relationship that you had. As that person's campaign manager, two years later, you're able to do that. You've donated 1600 yeah. bucks uh, every single year for the last 10 years. And you worked on a campaign and two, two years later, you're off scot-free and you can um, lobby them. And yes. you were on a board one time, you can never speak to them again. It doesn't make any sense. So, And here's here's where I, I think some people will say like, oh, but couldn't they just check in with the commissioner? And it's like, yeah, they could. But frankly, like expanding the scope of what is fundamentally capricious enforcement based on unclear rules is bad. <laughs> so we don't want to do that. Uh, this is similar to Dion's precedent a couple years ago about um, having to get a, a waiver now to work at another public sector entity once you've left government. Uh, and it's like, are they routinely granted? It seems that way, but like, like these are people's lives and livelihoods, and it's like seems bad to have this to have poorly drafted rules that are then enforced fairly opaquely. Uh, so and I, I will say I differently by different commissioners. Exactly. Which is yes, the worst exactly. part, perhaps, this whole scheme is, you know, the commissioners exist in this area where they are in charge of a, you know, they're very senior level f- officials, and they're in charge of a single, you know, depending on which commissioner we're talking about, but a single act in some cases, and you know, the the accompanying code of conduct. And, uh, you know, they have a lot of staff who are related to compliance and the everyday management of the office, but they don't have a ton of other things to do aside from investigate folks when things go wrong and dream of new ways to change the rules to keep their minds busy. And I find that often it's the dreaming of new ways to change the rules to keep their mind busy. Um, you know, it, not, not that you can relate it, to that. It takes two forms. <laughs> it takes the, let me make the legislative, or the legislative recommendations. Fabulous. Yeah. Um, but let me change what I can change within my power and continually tweak things, um, which I would say is admittedly less welcome in many circumstances. Yes. Um, very quickly, let's touch on the other one. Dessert, baby. Uh, yeah. On hospitality. Dessert. So the yes. new rules around gifts and hospitality. Um, the what so just off memory the way it was phrased before was about giving um lobbyists could not offer gifts that could not be accepted by public office holders which is a good rule so, frankly because it's like there already is a good set of rules around this in the conflict of interest code yeah, so it leans act. on another set of rules to say you as a lobbyist cannot break the rules or cannot entice them to break the rules where they yeah, say don't put they people in a position accept you know whatever x gift is depending on which set of rules you're talking yeah good rule because it's sort of like it rests on the same principles not just the rules but it's the principle of don't put people in conflicts of interest and don't put people where they have a sense of obligation to you right like those are easy to follow because it's like that's parsable right whereas if you start getting really detailed and prescriptive but actually leave like big wide open loopholes as we've kind of been talking about or not loopholes so much but uh like gray areas then that's problematic. But at any rate, continue. Sorry. So the new gifts rule is never offer, promise, or provide, directly or indirectly, any gift to an official that you lobby or expect to lobby other than a low-value token of appreciation or promotional item. And you might be asking, mm-hmm. what is a low-value token of appreciation or promotional item? And, of course, thankfully, that is defined in the, at- or in the code now, or in the draft code, to be clear. 
Um, low value is set at approximately $30 uh, in 2020 dollars, including taxes. And they can take inflation into amount. Into can into account. <laughs> yes. Um. So thirty dollars is interesting. Um, you know, it's not a secret that there are receptions on the hill. Um, so, you you one quick thing is that you're talking about the gifts and not the hospitality here. Oh, sorry. The, but the same definition is used in the hospitality. Section. Yes, but let me just read the hospitality one because you you read the gifts part. Uh. So the new the rule about hospitality is never offer directly or indirectly hospitality to an official that you lobby or expect to lobby other than low value food or beverage for consumption during an in-person meeting event or reception and as etienne said low value here being 30 dollars, and hospitality here being food or beverage provided for consumption during an in-person meeting event or reception which does not include vouchers or delivery of food or beverage to officials attending by any means other than in person okay so yeah. let me adjust that because the gifts are you know two things one there used to be like loot bags i think i got a an apron that said like beer Canada on it at a reception once upon a time, which still seems fine. Um, yeah, the, that's the low value in the promotional items. What's more interesting yeah. is the hospitality side of it. I was lumping those two together in my mind. Yes. Um, that's which right. is basically a threshold of $30 of food and drink that can be offered, which is, mm-hmm. so I think we're of a little bit different view in terms of where the line should be. Um, and let me let me set the stage here once again is that on Parliament Hill and this is not a well-known thing outside of Parliament Hill is that there is a lot of free booze and food you can get on Parliament Hill simply by sticking around after work and skating around to the various receptions that happen most days uh, and eating your fill of free food and drinking your fill of free alcoholic beverages uh, as you can expect this is not a particularly salubrious arrangement but there you go so basically the guidance on these uh receptions and the way it kind of fit within the the previous framework was that so long as the receptions were open to the public um and that there wasn't uh well i don't know if it's so much open to the public so long as all uh members of parliament were invited or able to attend that you can target you know i'm only inviting you know these five ministers and we're going to eat at a very fancy restaurant. Often there are like large public events where there are hundreds of people in attendance, including staff and journalists and, you know, take your pick. And so this is kind of like, you know, this and sponsored travel are kind of like the... The perks. The, yeah. The, that no one wants to these eliminate. These are the upsides um, to working on the hill and, you know... And a lot of staff enjoy, you know, it's almost more staff than MPs sometimes at these things. Often. Um, enjoy <laughs> Often. the hospitality. <laughs> um, so, the proposal for a $30 limit, there's there's the question of whether or not you like that this is occurring. Um, but the proposal for a $30 limit, I think, is interesting because it puts a number. And the question is, what can you buy for $30? Um not much these days, thanks to just inflation <laughs> and Joe Brandon. So obviously. Uh... So what can you buy for thirty dollars? And two, what would that look like in terms of implementing it on the ground? And I think I know your uh, genius solution. Wait, well, go ahead. Is go ahead. tickets, go ahead. but I think as oh no, then let me do it myself. Come on. <laughs> I think that a thirty dollar limit is a little bit low and also challenging. And I'll, I'll tell you. So, 
you know, the usual reception, you have uh, basically an open bar or sometimes there are cash bars and then there's, you know, people going around with food or little buffet tables or whatever. How do you know when someone hits $30 on either of those things? And your response is tickets. And the answer is, okay, but now I need to make sure that the food I'm offering with the tickets and the drink and the retail value plus GST does not come to, you know, greater than $30. And it's not really clear if that's like wholesale price or I guess it'd be the vendor price, but like $30, you can hit that pretty quickly, especially depending on what venue you're at. Like if you're at a Applebee's, it might be a little harder to hit that $30 with one drink and, um, you know, an app or an appetizer. But if you're at many of the venues on the hill, I don't know what House of Commons catering charges for these things, but I think a drink can cost, you know, $10 or something. And then how many appetizers and how do you control the consumption of the appetizers and, you know, this, that, and the other thing. It yeah. becomes complicated because you don't want, fundamentally, you don't want to get in trouble for having an MP that uses too many tickets or eats too many lobster rolls or what have you. Um, you want kind of a reasonability test in this whole thing. And so it's... It's a little dodgier than you think. Let me let me take the reasonability angle and stand that on its head and say, I think if most Canadians were aware that MPs and their staff are basically treated to an all-you-can-eat-drink buffet every day, uh, on based on from people who would like them to make policy changes, I think people would largely be against that, and it would not pass itself a reasonability test. On the subject... Let me just respond to that. <laughs> um, I would say, I think most people think the perks of the job um as well as what they're exposed to in terms of gift and stuff like that are actually uh much more generous than they are in fact and i think that yes i think that's possible and i think that the expectation around hospitality probably is um worse than it is in actual in actual matter of fact i think it's pretty bad and it's not particularly defensible um as a system and i'd say the same for sponsored travel uh, which basically got carved out. Sponsor travels a whole, a whole, new, a whole different thing. I mean, I think it's a difference of degree rather than kind. Fundamentally, it's inducements to people uh, to do nice things for you uh, through socially acceptable means. Uh, I personally, so on the food question, I'm actually less incensed about this. I think having some finger foods is like not a big deal, but like I do think it's weird that you can kind of drink unlimited for free. I think the solution of having you go to reception, you get two drink tickets is like not crazy. Uh, I also think it would probably cut down on the amount of problem drinking that happens on Parliament Hill and with its, all of its attendant problems that shake out in various other ways. Uh, so to me, that that seems fine. Like, I don't really see a problem with that. So, uh, and I think we have we have perfectly acceptable and normal historical reasons for treating food differently than alcohol. Like, we do so every day because i have to go to the grocery store to buy food and i have to go to the lcbo to buy liquor it's like not a distinction that is like without precedent you can actually go to the grocery uh, store to buy liquor now but it depends where yes but not any grocery stores close to me unfortunately uh well, i suppose the new one it literally does but still so let me um, just be clear on my position very quickly in case people are, are given the wrong you you think mps should be able to drink as much as they <laughs> want is, whenever they want that is in fact not my position <laughs> and uh, as a not an mp i am not particularly um staff pre- should be staff and their guests <laughs> <laughs> As someone who often took advantage of that perk uh, when you had a staff friend on the hill, shall we say. Yeah, from, 
from time to time. Um, <laughs> however, uh, what I would say is it's really in terms of just thinking about it in terms of an implementation. Um, just make it 50 bucks. Yeah, I think $30 maybe a little low and you're, you know, you're talking about this, that, and the other thing. Two drinks and a, a hot dog might be hitting that threshold. Where if you make it a little bit higher, you crack down on the unlimited without having the... Um, yeah, fifty bucks is fine. Of hitting that threshold, you know, as incidentally, and if you know yeah. someone's going after their their fifteenth lobster roll, then that's pretty, uh, you know, that's on them. And also, I mean, even on the subject of like the the drinking stuff, like even if someone were like you know collecting other people's drink tickets, it's like at that point, it's not really actually incumbent on the lobby to like worry about that because what you have given them is two drink tickets and that's where your sort of hospitality to that begins and ends what other people choose to do with their tickets is not really your business i would say because uh, you the are drink ticket itself does not have value what does have value is when the ticket is exchanged for the drink itself and therefore that's what would compromise you does that does that make sense i i mean no, I don't think so, but I think we could we could argue all day about this point, and I, I we're already at an hour twenty, so we'll probably call her there. Um, yeah, uh, so that's that's all the fun stuff that's been happening, except for the war in Ukraine, uh, which we didn't talk about. Uh, we we might do an episode on that in the relatively near future if we can get a good guest for it, which we we've might. Got, so we've we'll got we've got someone in mind. We'll we'll see how it goes. Yes, uh, so we'll see how that goes. But otherwise, uh, thank you for your, your patience in uh, making it to this episode. I presume that uh, people who listen to this podcast basically like do not eat or drink in between episodes and like breathe as little as they humanly can. So I appreciate that it's been a hard wait. Um, but yeah, no, now we, uh, we did this and hopefully we'll be back again relatively soon. It's just been a busy couple of months. So these are the way things go sometimes. Here, here. Uh, yeah, that will do it for this episode of The Boys in Short Pants. Uh, you can rate and review us on iTunes, etc. You can follow us on Twitter at Short Pants Pod. Uh, and otherwise, bye bye. <laughs>